0: Listener Production. So, here on the briefing, we've reported on the heat waves and wildfires in Europe and Northern America in this summer, and it's been a very, very wild time there, particularly in Canada where they've had record wildfires. We've also touched on what we're expecting here in Australia as an El Nino weather pattern heads our way. What if? escaping that heat wave here in Australia with air conditioning isn't an option because some parts of Australia turns out we could be facing a summer of rolling blackouts. Australia's energy market operator is ringing the alarm bells on a perfect storm of high temperatures and increasing demand for electricity but our unreliable and ageing coal-fired generators can't keep up. And there's not enough renewables to fill the supply gap. So today in the briefing, Katrina's investigating what this will all mean for our summer and what needs to be done to secure our future energy supply. First, today's headlines with Antoinette Latouf. It is Wednesday, the 6th of September.
1: Well, there's lots happening in aviation news with Qantas CEO Alan Joyce suddenly gone as of yesterday the heat is now turning back to the federal government's decision to block the extra Qatar Airways flights into Australia now a parliamentary inquiry will examine the decision which essentially pushed up flight prices for customers So the airline had applied to run an extra 21 flights into Australia per week. So that's seven each to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. And the inquiry will hand down its report in October.
0: Yeah. So today, the new CEO of Qantas, Vanessa Hudson, will take over from Alan Joyce after the huge bombshell announcement yesterday that he was retiring two months early. Um, Lots of people were quite happy with that announcement, including the unions. Here's ACTU President Michelle O'Neill
1: we would hope that the new leadership at Qantas is going to leave behind the baggage. Of Alan Joyce and start a new approach to showing respect for their workforce and also for their customers. Yes,
0: yeah, so I think that speaks to one of Alan Joyce's first big controversies, which was back in 2011, three years into his tenure, uh, where he grounded the entire Qantas fleet mm. um, in a fight with the unions. Um, the thing is about the new CEO, Antoinette Vanessa Hudson, is that she was basically Alan Joyce's protege.
1: Yeah, exactly. Look, this, this was going to happen, surely. Um, I think think many people expected. I know the resignation came two months early, although it had been being called on for years. I do have to say one thing I have enjoyed is all of the satirical takes of this resignation. Like it's times like this that I really do love the internet. And I saw something to the effect that Joyce's resignation letter got lost by baggage handlers. Um, And another one that Joyce standing down early is the first time Qantas has actually been ahead of schedule. And Mm. and I, I know a lot of people have lost jobs. Many airline customers are rightfully angry about the outrageous ticket costs. And then, of course, we saw the airline report huge profits and, of course, all of that lost luggage. But actually, I did take a moment to chuckle at these takes.
0: Yeah, you can feel the pain and laugh at the same time. Often, uh, they're the best laughs. Um, it's been an incredible crisis to watch unfold, particularly how much Australians turned on Alan Joyce as an individual. I think when there is a lot of love for a company, um, there also can be a lot of hurt when it lets people down. And I think... The best thing about this whole story for me is that it shows profitability isn't everything, which is kind of a relief in a very free market sort of economy. It's proven that keeping your shareholders happy isn't all that matters, that your customers and the community matter. It also shows that the media, politicians, the legal system, um, regulators like the ACCC, we're all part of that wider accountability process. Um, For Alan Joyce, it's a It's a sad way to go out for him personally. For 15 years, he's been at the helm of this airline and got it into good financial health in a very challenging international market. And he did that mostly through cutting down the cost base. And it basically appears that he went too far and gutted the service too much and probably stayed in the job a bit too long and became too powerful and too resistant to criticism and change. And he had planned to resign in 2019. Imagine if he'd done that before the pandemic. would have gone out a corporate hero.
1: Yeah, look, I think it is comforting that capitalism doesn't reign supreme and Aussies, we actually care about people and and good ethics. A Labor government is set to extend the life of Australia's biggest coal-fired power station. So Araring, which is near Newcastle in New South Wales, was set to close by 2025. This timeline under the former Liberal government, who were pushing hard on a renewables transition, But the new Labor government in New South Wales now says it supports keeping it open longer in case there's insufficient replacement power.
0: Yeah, so this is a really interesting story in New South Wales, but it has ramifications across Australia, you know, the whole of the nation is moving through this transition from coal-fired power towards renewables. And there was a really progressive liberal government in New South Wales. And that's when this timeline was set. Um, They're generating a lot of investment in renewables. But here we have a Labour government saying, well, unfortunately, we don't have the replacement power yet. So we need this big coal-fired power station as an insurance policy.
1: Yeah, look, and some environmental groups have called on the government to use the funds it would pay Origin to instead quicken the rollout of things like rooftop solar and batteries for household and businesses to limit the risk of blackouts. So yeah, they're definitely copying a lot of criticism for this extension.
0: And the Spanish Football Federation has sacked the coach of its national women's team, Jorge Vilda, less than three weeks after he led them to the World Cup victory here in Australia. So this is the coach that has caused a bit of controversy. It's not the Federation's president, Louis Rubiales, who's been under massive pressure and temporarily suspended. This is the, the coach, essentially. They call them managers in football. Um, last year, 15 players announced they would n- no longer play for Spain because of Vilda, um, but those concerns weren't addressed and they went on and played the World Cup and, and won, but now he's gone.
1: Yeah, look, the reporting suggests that there was no reason given for his sacking, but I reckon it's pretty obvious that the leadership was problematic and it was not working even before the World Cup kicked off. Yeah, there were those players who had grievances. Some of their best players didn't come over to Australia as um, as part of that dispute with management. And so the players had heaps of grievances with coaches and managers in the lead up to coming to Australia and that was things like insufficient training and support and not a good workplace environment. But then um, for that coach to come out and publicly defend the sexual harassment that President Louis Rubiales did when millions saw it happen. It happened live. It was just gross. So like, I'm like, see you bro. Next.
0: Good riddance. All right. Katrina is up in just a moment, right after this message, looking at the rolling blackouts we could be facing this summer.
2: Brace yourself for a summer without air conditioning. Well, all right, it might not be quite that grim, but there are predictions many states in Australia could face rolling blackouts with our energy grid just unable to cope with the forecast record temperatures ahead. So if you live in eastern Australia, this will particularly affect you. Even though we've had new generation and storage capacity added to the national electricity market since last summer, so what is going on with our energy security? And what should our government do to safeguard our future energy supply? Is it already too late? To answer all these questions, I'm joined by Professor Samantha Hepburn, who's an expert in environmental law research at Deakin University. Samantha, thanks for joining us on the briefing. You've just returned from Europe. You were in Greece. Uh, What was it like to actually swelter through those conditions?
3: Look, it was extremely hot. Um, And the other, I guess, obviously disturbing thing is that a lot of Athens was on fire. So there was a lot of smoke haze around, which was problematic for many people in terms of the quality of the air that they're breathing in. It was an experience, definitely, and something that I think Australia needs to prepare for because what often happens, I mean, it's good in a way. We get a forewarning about weather conditions as Europe goes through it first. Yeah, and our um,
2: energy market operator has already forecast that, particularly if you live in the eastern states, this summer could be one where we're experiencing a higher number of rolling blackouts than perhaps we've experienced before. Um, what are the reasons for that?
3: the first thing, of course, is that we have increased energy demand. There's a certain irony in the fact that we're trying to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to reduce the climate emergency, which is contributing to a lot of these changes in weather events. And yet at the same time, in order to address a lot of these climate events, particularly in a very hot and extreme weather, we're having to use more energy. So that is a major concern. The other, of course, main Concern is that bushfires will take out transmission lines, which means that there's generally blackouts. The last time that happened was that catastrophic one in 50 year storm that happened in South Australia where all of the power lines came down. That was extraordinary. And so the same thing can happen, of course. It doesn't have to be a storm, it can be a bushfire as well. The other issue is this if we have a massive demand because of escalating temperatures in the 40s uh, that's going sort of 24 hours, then we will have huge demand for cooling and that may mean that the system is strained to an enormous level and there'll be load shedding. And load shedding is the controlled supply of electricity. So some parts will simply go without so that we can maintain system reliability. We've seen that before. Uh, It's not a blackout but it has the same effect and it can happen for you know short periods of time. Now, it's actually very interesting what's happening as we transition to a new energy world. Uh, I was looking at some stats and to date the statistics on how much blackout an individual consumer has experienced annually is currently about 200 minutes. And the prediction is unless we address a lot of the reliability issues, that may double. So that's quite a lot. Remember, it's not just about producing more energy. It's a multifaceted issue because it doesn't matter if you're producing more energy if your transmission goes out. So um, there's a whole range of factors that we need to be addressing as we move towards um, the Australian summer.
2: How are we going with that transition to renewables? What does our current energy mix look like? In
3: 2023, we had about 36% integration of renewables. So that means that the rest of the percentage has largely been fossil fuel, coal and gas, and that's traditionally how we generate energy. Now, clearly we're moving away from that. The aim in order to meet our climate commitments is to have 82% by 2030. Now, that's a big jump because if you look at how... A renewable integration is increasing it's rather low so i think we're only going up a couple of percentages a year at the moment now that's not to say that there's not a lot of activity and projects in the pipeline 173 gigawatts of renewable energy in the pipeline um, you know massive hydro facilities huge hydrogen in the pilbara massive increase of small scale solar you know i guess mums and dads you know putting solar on their property things like that that's all happening but we don't have reliability at scale from renewable energy yet. And combined with that, we are having ageing fossil fuel facilities go offline. And we also know that ring which produces, I think, something in the vicinity of 2,880 megawatts of energy a year, has indicated origin that owns error ring has said, right, it's not cost effective anymore. So we will cease in 2025. Now that will be a major issue. We're going to have to accelerate enormously. In fact, the prediction is that we're going to have to accelerate renewable production, probably two or three times what we're doing now, as well as storage is going to have to increase 35 fold. So while we do have grid scale batteries, and pumped hydro as storage, we're still going to have to escalate rapidly. And, you know, the $64 million question is can we escalate quick enough to address these changes and at the same time meet our climate commitment, which of course is 43% below 2005 levels by 2030 and net zero by 2050? And if we don't do that, We'll have, you know, two degrees warming, which is also catastrophic for not just energy, but but food security, habitat, um, you know, obviously sustainability across the scale.
2: To me, it feels scary that we're still having these. Um conversations where we're asking yes. questions. We we should be well on the path to action by now. Where does nuclear power factor into all of this? Is that something that needs to be made a serious part of the conversation again?
3: Well, and what happens when, you know, the reason that this has become a part of the conversation, because it's currently, we don't have any um, nuclear plants generating energy in Australia, even though we have I think the figures are about 28% of the world's uh, resources of uranium. So we've got a lot, but the, we do have one. I think there's one plant in Sydney, but that's only used to generate medical equipment which, of course, is, is is something that we do have. We do use nuclear in different ways, but we don't have it for generating energy. Now, we could have what are called small modular reactors. Um, I think Russia and China have some of those, and, and that would provide what we call baseload, which means it's a bit like you know, replacing coal and gas with a constant source of energy, which would take away our reliability concerns and its low emissions. Obviously, there are other concerns with it, particularly in, in terms of radioactive waste and, and what would happen there. And we wouldn't want to have an issue like Fukushima. And this all generates social licensing concerns. Would communities accept it, et cetera? At the moment, we've got legislation at the federal level, uh, including our National Environment Act, the EPBC Act, which effectively bans nuclear energy. So we'd have to have regulatory change. Um, the other issue with nuclear is that it is actually quite costly Uh, the capital cost to build, and it takes a long time to build and we haven't got a long time, is much higher than renewable energy. So that's probably one of the main reasons the economy, a scale is one of the main reasons that we haven't progressed with nuclear energy. The figures are something like um, I think it's $82 per megawatt for renewables versus $130 for nuclear. So it's it's quite a significant difference and cost is, is, is a big factor. I suppose so is time. I don't necessarily think that we don't have the technology for it. We've certainly evolved in terms of integrity and processing. We've probably diminished a lot of our social licensing concerns, although there is still that issue about where to put the radioactive waste. But it is time and money at the moment.
2: All right, so we've we've kind of looked at big picture, but on a much smaller scale, we've still got, I guess, a month, a couple of months to get ready for these forecast hot temperatures. What can we do as individuals to get ready for the summer ahead?
3: I think we have to be aware. First of all, we have to plan for the fact that we may not be able to use you know any any cooling appliances that we might have if there's load shedding or if there's a blackout. How are we going to be able to cope without energy? Some consumers might have their own generators or or have backup plans. A lot of people don't, of course, And, and, of course, there's a lot of essential services that will have their own generators, such as hospitals. If you aren't in that situation, then plan for the potential of either load shedding, which involves blackouts for a few hours generally or a full-scale blackout, which can be a couple of days or even a couple of weeks. In terms of of energy um, and what we can do in terms of, I guess, energy security, we have to accelerate energy diversification. We have to continue with the path that we're on, which is progressing wind power. I think wind power is supposed to be one of the main sources of energy by 2050, so we have to continue investing in the renewable energy projects that we've got and get those through, get our hydro through, progress our green hydrogen and just hope that we can uh, meet demand but at the same time expect that we may not be able to. And remember, we can't necessarily have the same level of energy security that we've previously had if we want to meet our climate commitments. That's the reality and this is the balance that, that the world is probably going to have to experience because if we don't meet our climate commitments, the future is very bleak.
2: That was Professor Samantha Hepburn who works in the area of environmental law at Deakin University and you heard her say that just like we've been uh, getting the message drilled into us that we need to be bushfire ready if we live in certain parts of Australia, maybe we need to learn how to get blackout ready for future summers too. listener.